Well, good morning. As we uh, begin this morning, I want to take just a little bit of time to express my appreciation for what I get to do uh, every week. Just this past week, I was visiting with someone um, and was sharing with them what a privilege it is to have been raised up from within a church to become a pastor of the very church who raised me up in the faith. I mean, what a rare opportunity and one in which I am deeply grateful for. I know this church is far from perfect, but I think it's pretty special. And uh, I really appreciate the deep community and connections that are, quite frankly, hard to find these days, but you find a lot of them right here within this body of believers. And if you're new to Melanie Park, I sincerely want to invite you into that community. This church is filled with imperfect people who serve a perfect Savior. And so we want to invite you into the community of what it means to be a child of God. And listen, we don't have it all figured out, and we never will, but we do believe strongly that life is better when we live life together. And so I want to invite you into that community. And when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about the kind of the social relationships that you might have in your workplace or neighborhood. What I'm talking about here is the freedom to be honest and vulnerable about what is happening in your life without being judged. Deep connections that make the hard times easier, it makes the good times better. A place where it's safe to share your highs and lows in life and know that somebody's going to go there with you. And I want to thank you for being that kind of a church for me. You well know that I've stood up here on more than one Sunday and shared with you some of the uh, hard struggles that I've experienced over the past year. But once again, very thankful for your love and support. I'm grateful for the elders, for their shepherding care. And because of that care, they've encouraged me to take a few weeks um, to just kind of have some rest and restoration. And uh, I want you to know, uh, this is really hard for me <laughs> uh, to step away. Um, part of the struggle, if I were to be real honest with you, and I just told you we could, so I guess I should, um, is I feel guilty. I feel guilty for, for stepping away, but I want to be healthy, and I want to serve you for a long time, for at least as long as the Lord intends. And so I would appreciate your prayers and your understanding over the next uh, three or four weeks. You're going to have some great teaching in my absence. That's one of the great blessings of this church is that when I'm not up here, we don't skip a beat because there are plenty of people who are equally as qualified in sharing God's Word as I am. So I'm thankful for that. But this morning, uh, we uh, are going to need to finish up Romans. But I will say this, when I come back, um, having finished up Romans uh, today, when I do return, we're going to begin a new study in the book of Daniel, which I am really excited about. I'm excited about everything we do, but... <laughs> I think it's timely, and I think it will be something uh, that we will all gain something significant from. And so, with that being said, I want us to uh, finish up Romans this morning, and what a journey it's been over the last year, hasn't it? And, and I really do hope that it has been as beneficial to you 
as it has been for me. But we've come to the end now, and we want to look at how Paul closes his letter. And and as he does, it's not with a a simple salutation as you might expect him to, to have at the end of a letter. It actually ends with a warning. A warning about things that arise with influences not from outside the church. His biggest concern as he closes out this letter are things that create disunity from within the church. It's a warning that we need to take to heart because as I've said in recent weeks, my biggest concern that exists in the modern church today is the critical and quarrelsome spirit that we so frequently see, often arising from within our churches. People who are perpetually dissatisfied, and they use that discontent to stir up dissension. That is Paul's concern for the church in Rome as he closes out his letter. And he wants us to understand, as he did for that audience back then, the priority, the importance of protecting unity. So as we open God's word, let's have that heart in mind. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to do so with hearts that are eager to hear your word, to learn from the truth of your word, to be transformed by the power of your spirit, to live lives to the praise and glory of your name. Father, we um, know that without you, none of this is possible. So would you speak into our hearts and to our minds, and would you shape our lives to be more reflective of your image in this world in which we live? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 16. Um, Romans chapter 16, and if you would, begin reading with me in verse 17, where Paul writes and says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. To the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So this is actually the third time that Paul begins a section in his letter with that phrase, I urge you. And I don't know about you, but there are certain phrases that when I read the Bible, they capture my attention. And anytime someone says, I urge you, I know what they're going to say is really important for me to hear. We can go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul uses those words and he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
As we said at the time, this is a transitional moment in Paul's letter to the Romans. He's shifting from everything that they've learned to how they should live, taking that biblical knowledge and turning it into a biblical lifestyle. I urge you, brethren, to not just take what you know and then leave it in your head, but I urge you to let it infiltrate your heart so it dictates how you live says something similar in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service may, for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. See, Paul had a vision for his continuing work of ministry. And that included being able to go to the church of Roman, who he's now writing to but has never previously visited. And he wanted to be refreshed by them with the hope of continuing that work of ministry into the country of Spain. I urge you to, to to, to pray for me consistently and persistently. Paul recognized that there's a spiritual battle that happens in our world. And prayer is the pathway in which we speak to the heart of God to strengthen the heart of his people, to carry out the work of his hands in the world in which we live. It's an important characteristic of the Christian life. He says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. The first, urge you, was a priority of obedience, taking what you've learned and let it impact how you live. The second was the priority of prayer, knowing that Prayer acknowledges our dependence upon the Lord. It's the confession that we can't do this without Him. And the third urge you is a priority of unity, faithful obedience, persistent prayer, and the protection of unity. It really is kind of the, the holy trinity of the Christian life. These are the core principles that God calls us to, to live by. Paul knows that protecting unity may be the most important because the other two depend on it. So he commands the church to be on high alert. He uses the Greek word skopeo. It's where we translate into words like microscope or telescope. It's the idea of examining something closely, but not in isolation. He says to, to test it by comparison. He says, look for teaching that is contrary to what you've been taught. It reminds me of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it says, they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. See, they were listening to what Paul had taught to see if it lined up with what the Bible says. Taking what they were hearing and seeing if it lined up with what they were reading in God's Word. It's like taking a plumb line, in, like you do in construction, to make sure something is in alignment. 
And that's the idea here. Paul says, look for people who are causing divisions and hindrances from within the church. When I think of divisions, I think of factions. People who create kind of an us versus them mentality. Always seeking to stir up one group in opposition to another group. Highlighting our differences instead of celebrating what we have in common. We see that all throughout our world, and it is so easy for it to infiltrate our church. These are people who have the gift of finding something wrong in every situation. Often viewing contemporary ideas to be superior to traditional values. In other words, newer is always better, right? Constantly grumbling about how something is broken and needs to be fixed. And it probably wouldn't surprise you that they often have the answer to the problems that they've identified. But if their answer is not accepted, they are often offended. And quick to criticize those in authority, those who are required to make decisions, convinced in their own mind that they could do better. But Paul says they're prideful people who are slaves to selfish appetites. They feast on their own ideas, their own opinions of how things need to be done. And more often than not, their reasoning is more philosophical than theological. What I mean by that is it's this idea of this is how I think it should work instead of this is what I understand God's word to say. You see the difference? Paul says they use smooth and flattering speech to deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. What that tells us is that their arguments appear convincing and their reasoning seems sound. Their motives appear to be pure because they just want to make things better, right? But somehow it only gets better if people follow their opinions. And notice Paul's guidance when we are encountering people like this from within the church. It's really quite simple if you look at it. He says, turn away. Turn away. Don't enter into a debate. Don't try to have a conversation. Don't try to expand the ideas. Turn away. Always seek to protect unity by decisively rejecting divisiveness. If it doesn't bring people together, it's not worth listening to. Don't fall into the trap of us versus them. Don't get dragged into the drama where emotions dictate decisions. Don't let discontent and doubt dominate your perspective and influence your opinions. Paul says, be wise in what is good and be innocent in what is evil. It's like what he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. I think if we could follow these instructions in this single verse, it would radically transform our lives. Not just individually, but corporately. Listen to what he says. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. By dwelling on what is good, we're not so easily distracted by all the imperfections around us. We see a God who reigns supreme and we gladly surrender to his sovereignty. We can be content with imperfections because we serve a perfect Savior. Amen? Paul says, be wise in what is good. Be innocent in what is evil. He uses a word here that describes a city wall. It's a word picture. It's protecting its people from a siege. It's the idea that Paul is saying, look, hold your ground. Stand behind the wall. Don't engage. Don't give in. Jeff Oldham and I have often talked in recent weeks as we visit with folks who are in difficult situations in their marriage. And Jeff has said on more than one occasion, one of the first things that he tells a couple who are in a hard place in their marriage, he reminds them this. He says, you need to understand something. Your spouse is not your enemy. It may feel like that at times, it may, may seem like that, but your spouse is not your enemy. You have an enemy, but it's not your spouse. And that enemy is Satan, and he likes to create division. Always seeking to separate what God has joined together, whether we're talking about a marriage or we're talking about the church. And it's easy to fall into the trap when we let discontent, or unmet expectations, or unrealistic ideas turn an ally into an enemy. But they are not your enemy. We have an enemy, but it's not them. Paul says, hold your ground, because one day the deceiver will be destroyed. The God of peace will soon Crush Satan under his feet. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me in the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cordus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Amen. After giving a strong warning, Paul follows with a closing greeting. And at first, you kind of look at this and you feel like, well, it's just, he almost kind of changed tracks. He's going a different direction, moving from one topic to another. But I think there may be a connection here. I think he may be, through this list of names, be giving them a picture of what true unity looks like. He begins with Timothy, Timothy, one of his most faithful partners in ministry. As we well know, Timothy joined Paul during his first missionary journey and continued to be a part of that ministry from that time on. 
Timothy, as we know, is from a mixed racial background. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek, which gave him unique insight into two very different cultures that was very valuable to Paul in his work of ministry. Lucius was from the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was kind of the sending church for Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries that were sent out to other parts of the world. We learn that Lucius was a part of this church, part of sending out Paul. But in Acts chapter 13, we also learn that he's originally from Cyrene in North Africa. So much like Timothy, he comes from a completely different cultural background and yet is an important and invaluable part of the work of gospel ministry. Then there's Jason. We hear about Jason when they're in Thessalonica because Jason gets dragged out by an angry crowd who's ready to kill him or at least throw him in prison because he's associated with Paul's ministry. We learn that it's actually Jason who was hosting Paul in his home, and in time it was Jason who would help Paul flee from Thessalonica. And after leaving Thessalonica, he goes to Berea where he encounters Sosipater. So these three men... Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater were Jewish kinmen from, from literally different parts of the world, joined together in a common commitment to gospel-centered ministry. The remaining people that Paul lists are all with him in Corinth when he's writing this letter. And Tertius the one who is dictating, as Paul's talking, he's writing out everything that we're now reading in this letter to the Romans. His name means third, Tertius, third. It's often a name that was given to a slave. We see the same thing with Quartus, also listed, which means fourth. The other people that we see are Gaius and Erastus. Gaius... On the other end of the spectrum was a very wealthy man who we learn from Scripture was baptized by Paul. And Paul stayed with Gaius in his home. In fact, the church in Corinth met in the home of Gaius. And then there's Erastus, the city treasurer, a man of wealth as well, and with some political influence as a city treasurer. So, as we think about those names and all those different places and all those different cultures, do you see the diversity? Do you see it? And yet within that vast diversity is a strong commitment to unity centered on the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry that they've been called to carry out not separately in different parts of the world but together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is demonstrating the unity that he is calling the Romans to protect. He's not asking them to do anything that he himself is not committed to. The impact of the gospel must first be witnessed inside the church before it can ever have a meaningful impact in the world around us. Now let's look at how Paul closes in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. The protection of unity, the promotion of community, and now the praise that belongs to God, to him who is able to establish you, be the glory forever. Amen. Everything we are called to be is not the result of what we must do. Instead, it's because of what he has done. It's at the heart of the promise in 1 Peter 5.10 where we read, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And here in our passage, as Paul closes out the letter to the Romans, he he explains to us how that happens. We are established according to the gospel. The good news of our salvation in Christ alone. Taking those who are dead in sin and making them Alive in Christ, new creations, transformed by the Spirit as a fulfillment of God's promise. And that promise at one time was hidden. It was veiled. It was seen in part, but now it has been seen in full, fully and completely revealed. I picture it like someone who steps onto the stage to introduce the star performer. They come on stage and they begin to highlight all the qualities of this person, their skills and their their abilities, their, their building anticipation, and then the curtain pulls apart and you see them with your own eyes and you experience all that they have to offer. That's the picture I have in mind as the Old Testament introduces, it speaks to, it builds anticipation, and then in the New Testament, the curtains pull back and we get to see Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise made visible before our eyes. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament promised the Messiah would be. God's plan of salvation, bringing reconciliation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, restoring the relationship, the life-giving relationship the eternal life-giving relationship with God that you and I were created for. It's a perfect plan. Flawlessly executed and completely fulfilled according to the commandment of the eternal God, the one and only wise God. Through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Amen? As we walk through Romans, Paul has unpacked the details of that gospel message. He's revealed to us the the amazing story of God's relentless grace, a treasure entrusted to us as recipients of that grace, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of God's family, co-heirs with his son, Jesus a treasure we must protect, knowing that anything worth protecting will undeniably come under attack, right? We know that. 
Anything worth protecting will undeniably kind of come under attack, which is why Paul says, be alert, be ready. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And when it happens, I want to give you three important questions that you need to ask yourself as you encounter these possible disruptions. The first question is this. Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it consistent with Scripture? Does it line up with God's biblical commands and His heart for His people? Or is it just a matter of someone's opinion or their perspective? Those are two different things. And you need to discern which one it is. Is it a matter of opinion and perspective, or does it line up with the truth of God's Word? Is it biblical? The second question is this. Does it exalt Christ? Does it reflect his heart of forgiveness? Does it demonstrate his heart of grace? Is that what you hear when you listen to what is being said? Or is it critical, condemning? Identifying things that divide us instead of things that bring us together. Does it exalt Christ who gave his life so that we could be together? Number three, does it build others up or does it tear people down? Again, does it highlight our differences or does it celebrate what we have in common? Rejoicing in what is good instead of complaining about what is wrong. Anything worth protecting will always come under attack. So be alert and be ready and ask yourself, is it biblical? Does it exalt Christ? Does it build others up or tear people down? I think the way Paul says it in his letter to Timothy sums this up nicely. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, guard. Guard. Through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. May we, you and I, through our lives and through our relationships, protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a gift. It's a treasure. Not that we create, but that we protect for the praise and glory of his name. Let me pray. Father, we think we will encounter. You prepare us so well. And you love your church, which you created through your blood on the cross, a collection of saints forgiven by the washing of their sins, the renewal of your spirit, to the praise and glory of your name. We, in fact, reflect who you are to the world around us. And not just the world around us. The scripture tells us even to the heavenly beings who are learning about you because of what they see in us. It makes sense why it's so important for us to protect what you have made possible through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we be alert. May we be decisively opposed to anything that brings divisiveness into that which you have brought together through your blood. Lord, help us to encourage each other to exalt your name and to protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.